Welcome to Residential Tech Talks. I'm Jeremy Glowacki, Executive Editor of Residential Tech Today. This week, Indie Audio Labs' Rick Santiago and Ted Moore join us from Indianapolis, where they run Indie Audio Labs, the parent company of the high-performance audio brands Acurus and Aragon. IAL manufactures all of its components in the U.S. using custom-fabricated parts and assemblies based on its proprietary electronics, mechanical, and software designs. The company had the benefit of proximity for last fall's Cedia Expo in downtown Indianapolis, where we briefly caught up and chatted about the current product lineup for IAL's two brands. For those who are unfamiliar with them, Acurus is a premium brand for private home cinema and media room installations, power amplification, and room acoustic optimization, whereas Aragon's titanium and iridium Amplifiers and tungsten preamplifier form the foundation for that brand's Elements Collection, which is a group of products that focus squarely on world-class two-channel listening in home and professional environments. Today, we'll discuss those two brands and learn a little bit more about how uh, Rick and Ted got to where they are today. They're a small and but mighty high-end audio brand. <laughs> Rick Santiago and Ted Moore, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, Jeremy. Hi, Jeremy. Thanks for having us. Hey, you know, you guys, uh, we, we, uh, we're, we're local to each other, but Rick, you and I, uh, several years ago, just kept crossing paths. You started the company right around the time that I'd moved back to the, the indie area. I was, I'm in Carmel and, uh, you're in Westfield. Mm -hmm. And I think we, we'd mm -hmm. run into each other at a local Starbucks. And I think we finally <laughs> sat down and had coffee at one point. And then right. you invited me uh, on a short road trip down to Southern Indiana, where at that time you were doing uh, circuit board uh, manufacture and uh, assembly of your products in those early earlier days. Um, yeah. We founded IAL about 13 years ago. Um, and uh, I, I just wanted to kind of um, catch up, talk about current stuff, but maybe uh, give us just a little bit of background, Rick, if you could, on... Um, how you came to acquire the brands, uh, which you, you didn't create from scratch, mm -hmm. but basically mm -hmm. they're existing brand names. And uh, yeah. what did you what what was that whole thing? I, and we'll get into your yeah. bi biography and background a little bit later. Right. Yeah, I won't, I won't get too deep into that, but just suffice it to say, um, Ted and I met at uh, Klipsch, which is a local speaker company that everybody's familiar with, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. And uh, we um, had visions of of a uh, of a high performance electronics um, line, let's just say that um, that maybe raised the bar in terms of connectivity. Because what was happening when we founded the company, and and even just prior to it, um, control systems were becoming prevalent. And they were evolving past the, um, you know, the the volume control on the wall that you know is dedicated to a, a speaker cable versus you know getting more into IP control and RS two thirty two control and some more of the network based stuff. And so we had a vision for a a company that um, could do both because there was a lot of companies at the time that could do high performance audio, but they struggled with connectivity and control and vice versa. There were a number of you know, consumer electronics companies that that really had the whole 
uh, control and networkability thing down pat, but their audio performance was just an afterthought uh, typically. So that was our that was our angle. And when we met at Klipsch, um, one of the things that we were exposed to is the brands Acuras and Aragon, uh, which had landed at Klipsch uh, after having been, been founded by Mondial Designs out of the New York area, you know, years and years prior. Um, we, um, we kind of e- evolved through our careers quickly at Klipsch. Things changed and we decided to spin out uh, our own company and having knowledge of those brands and the, the performance and the, we decided that, Hey, that would be a great platform to start with as far as audio uh, architectures and things like that. And so we went back to Fred Klipsch and said, Hey, um, you know, as you know, we've, we've started this company and we'd like to actually buy those brands from you. And um, uh, Fred was uh, gracious and worked with us and uh, we ended up striking a deal and ended up owning the brands pretty early on. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, it it was kind of going from there and looking forward and, and really glad we did because these, these brands have fantastic technology and, and they've, they've been able to be evolved with not a whole lot of effort um, because they were solid to start with. Yeah. And uh, bringing uh, Ted into the conversation here, you, you come at it uh, um, on, the the engineering side um what were you looking at in terms of um i mean this could be more of a marketing question but how those two brands would be differentiated in those early um discussions uh, was that already yeah. established as far oh. as what each one was kind of focused on one one more of a home theater performance um audio type product line and the other two channel i guess or the this differences yeah that's that's essentially the the strategy there is that we uh we wanted to reserve aragon to be sort of the the ultimate tier for our, for indie audio labs being a two-brand company what is where does aragon represent that in that case it was you know two channel it still is it still remains primarily a two channel situation um but it, sort of the ultimate in listening performance um, and power delivery and just replication. And Acuris was to represent kind of the real uh, integrator go-to brand for home theater, for media room installs, that kind of, that kind of application. And so we've spent most of the first part of the company kind of blowing out the uh, models that we would need to satisfy the accurate lineup, you know, for an integrator to go to have a, you know, really just kind of a nice rack full of accurate gear that would do the whole job. And uh, for Aragon during this period, we had two amplifiers. We had the dual monoblock, uh, which at the time was called the 8008. It's been reborn with, with sort of new performance levels as the titanium in our element series. And then the Iridium monoblock. And then this year we're going to be launching the tungsten preamp, which we showed off at Cedia last year. And to much, you know, acclaim, everyone who heard it was blown away. Um, so it's, it's pretty exciting to get both the brands reestablished in the market but with new, uh, you know, new characteristics, new UIs that are fresh and, and uh, relevant. Uh, no, 
null vacuum fluorescent displays. <laughs> That's not something <laughs> we do. Um, so we, you know, that was our vision. You know, our vision was to basically update audio, mm -hmm. right? So what that means is uh, keeping, you know, the strong audio performance that was already there and not sacrificing that, uh, but updating it from a control and user participation standpoint, which we which we've done. And um, it's one of the hallmarks of Acuras. And as people will see in Aragon, with it, it has its own design language as well, as far as UI goes. Um, it's very recognizable. Uh, it's very, very relevant. You can use a smartphone, which are, which who, who can't, you can use one of our products without reading the manual really. Um, and that's been extremely successful in capturing market share and, and uh, customer loyalty and, and just engaging kind of a new population of audio connoisseurs, if you will, yeah. in the, in the CD space. Yeah. So you, um, you, you had all along focused, decided that the CDA channel in particular, the custom integrator, the professional integration community would kind of be your customer, um, target then, right? Not, not an end user direct to consumer. Absolutely. Customer. Yeah. You know, we, we do have the occasional end user who will buy from us directly, but by and large, we work uh, directly with integrators as our primary customers. Yeah, and, and custom integrators love when you are focused on the channel. Obviously, it's a dedicated focus. You're you're more responsive. You, you, you kind of run a lean and mean operation, so you can probably be... Uh, the, the person they talk to on the phone, I would imagine if they had a question. Oh, yeah. 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 We have a very short distance between, uh, the people who actually design and build the gear and, and the customer <laughs> and the integrator, which, so, which by the know, way, we, gives we, us nowhere to hide. I mean, the, <laughs> well, that's another side of it. Yes. And, 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 <laughs> well, and, it, and it's a positive motivator, right? Because it means that mm -hmm. because we have nowhere to hide, that means if there's an issue, we got to correct it. Um, because right. frankly, there's probably for every phone call, there's going to be another three or four following it, you know, as soon as that software bug or whatever it is, you know, shows up. So it kind of keeps us on our toes when it comes to quality, when it comes to, um, you know, updating the products, uh, adapting to changes in the market or changes in technology. It, it requires us to stay on our toes because, um, frankly, we don't want to hire that third party support company. Uh, as a firewall, we want to be able to hear from ourselves directly from the customer. And you get a lot of good nuggets in that, in that feedback because you, you find out what are some of the real scenarios that maybe the designers, you know, on our side didn't anticipate, you know, the product is always going to be used in a way that you didn't expect. And so when you actually listen to your customers directly without any filter, um, you get to learn a lot and you get to evolve it in a way that makes it a lot more appropriate for the job that the integrator wants to do. So you had uh, taken me down to a tour of a facility in Southern Indiana. You've since uh, op moved your operations to really local for you, um, other than you said the circuit boards in Silicon Valley, which uh, is pretty pretty uh, common. And, but it's great uh, and amazing that you can do what would tr traditionally be, I uh, would imagine, mostly Asian uh, manufactured uh, technologies, just that category, 
um, mm-hmm. in the U.S. And even more so, you're in Indianapolis, which you don't really hear much of that uh, from a manufacturing standpoint. So uh, right. is it still as unique as I think it is to be able to do it all in the U.S. like that? It is. It is. And I think people are learning uh, the pain points of sort of outsourcing your, <laughs> your product, yeah. as it were. Um, and that's not to say we don't have struggles. I mean, one of the big struggles right now across the board, and it's not just in audio, but anyone who uses a chip in any device uh, is having problems. Um, but we don't have containers full of, you know, models, you know, everything we do is, is built by us, by our manufacturing team in Indianapolis. Um, everything we, uh, you know, we design all of our own boards. Uh, we do have a few off the shelf modules that we use, but those are American companies that make those. Um, but you know, the vast majority of what's in our stuff is all custom. It's all our own, you know, intellectual property, our own engineering, our own software development, all that stuff. So, you know, we've been able to, and we, you know, quite frankly, we have a large quantity of uh, chips on hand that Mm. we've accumulated over the years. So we've been able to buffer some of the more extreme chip situations that have been plaguing a few other people. But that allows us, especially during the pandemic, to really uh, pivot quickly and offer faster delivery than our competitors. Still not as fast as we'd like because the supply chain is just so you know uh, prevalent everywhere. Yeah, it's very pervasive and ongoing. But uh, we could still we're, we're nimble. Uh, if we need to do a redesign, we can do that quickly to use a different part, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, the mechanical aspects of all the pro- all the products are easily manipulated as well, and we can we work closely with our local vendors on that that stuff. So we don't have, you know, we don't have product being held hostage on some container ship out out in a bay somewhere. It's just not that's not our problem. Yeah, it seems like it would be um, a really good opportunity to achieve a little more market share even with uh, mm-hmm. folks who, yeah, who, who couldn't has. get products for other for their projects and said, hey, wh- where can we find companies that can do this? And there you guys are. So uh, right. it, it's been as successful as, as bad as the pandemic has been in so many ways. It's been a very, uh, um, it, as a lot of home-related um, investments have, have been uh, increasing, so is the home theater and home electronics and all that, obviously. So, uh, have you, have you guys been scrambling even just to keep up with the demand as well? Yeah. Yeah. uh, It it is kind of a weird, (laughs) it is a weird dynamic that, that even though the, you know, the pandemic has really just caused so many problems across the economy in this particular part of it, uh, and across the board, it's not just our company, but almost anyone who's involved in, in you know, the CD channel is just seeing a fantastic business. And it really is just coming down to fundamentally, a, uh, you know, kind of a parts, a supply chain delivery situation yeah. to meet all of that demand. So, you know, I think it's going to, 
I think it's going to go on for a while. I don't think we're, we're going to see that just suddenly dry up and blow away. I think, especially given the length of this virus, how long it's been out there and how it keeps changing and we have to adapt to it. The idea of being at home and wanting your sound system to be modernized and, and you're going to spend a lot of time there, so you might as well enjoy yourself. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, on top of that is just the fact that entertainment across the board has become more and more home centric. Mm -hmm. It's just very easy to get high quality audio and video in your home. Right. And what all you really lack are the systems to make it sound and look the best that it possibly can. So I think that hand in hand with the pandemic is really what we're, we're looking at when we see all these orders. So it's good. And if we get the supply chain sorted out, then, then, uh, it'll be even better. Yeah. And, and we're all as, as, uh, unsure about when that'll happen. <laughs> no one, no one has an answer on that one yet. Uh, anywhere no. from what six months to two years, depending on what you hear. But, uh, are you, do you have any insights into anything on that? It's, I, I don't want to put you on the spot because I don't think anybody really does have any, the answer. But but do you, yeah, are you hearing any uh, anything? It's really hard, Jeremy, because uh, you can't really believe anything, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it's a picture that changes every week. Quite frankly, it's uh, it's almost every week there's a new surprise. Yeah. And uh, you know, on top of just the parts being hard to find, when you can find them. Uh, you know, the price is, is gone up tremendously, you know, really to be honest, it's not, I don't think any of the price change increases that people have been experiencing are really reflective of the prices that, uh, manufacturers are paying. I mean, we'll have a, a part that was formerly 50 cents be $25 yeah, <laughs> or even more. And, uh, it's a situation where if you want it, that's what you have to pay. Wow. And uh, I don't know when that's going to end. So it's very unpredictable. Hopefully it won't be too much longer. I, I think that the virus situation is going to have to stabilize for many, many months before it'll probably, uh, you know, kind of dampen down the oscillations we're seeing in the parts. So all the more reason to really keep more control over the products that you are making. Right. And not have them made by somebody else. If you really have chosen to have your products made by somebody else and, and that's not in the, and they're not in the U S you really are having, going to have a tough time, but that's well, going to be a real problem. Well, it, se it seems so wise on your part to have gone that direction, but uh, I can't imagine you had a crystal ball and figured out this would be such a, a great, uh, <laughs> Uh, situation yeah. for you, but what 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 was the decision there? Was it just becoming um, more? You just wanted to stay uh, small at the beginning and have control, or it seems like it would have been, been so easy to have those overseas um, manufacturing arrangements. Um, what what was the, your experience maybe through Clips to have yeah. been able to say yeah. this is what we're going to do? Yeah, it was, it was really, we just, uh, we had, there were two, two factors. The first factor was we just really didn't want to go to China anymore. Okay. Oh, you just didn't want to travel. 
Right. So that was one factor. And then the second factor was we had this theory that we could actually make audio products like we wanted to make here in the U.S. Um, so we decided to sort of roll the dice and, you know, make it so, as it were. Um, wasn't easy. Okay. Um, if I'm honest, American manufacturing as it applies to these kinds of these level of products in term and mainly mechanical I'm talking about here. Okay. Um, was really bad. Hmm. Uh, almost to the point where it was awful. Quality was terrible. Um, lead times were, were awful. Um, prices were really bad. So it was difficult. Um, we did, uh, you know, we had to change vendors for, you know, and I'm talking about things like front panels, yeah, equipment, chassis, power buttons, knobs, all that, all that kind of stuff. Boards, we were able to secure fairly quickly at a really good price, at a really good quality level from our first board manufacturer, which is the company you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast down in Southern Indiana. Yeah. Um, so we actually, once we found that, we felt pretty good. Because that that was probably our most uh, our our biggest concern was can we find that level of quality and cost that we need uh, for boards right we you know the mechanical stuff we kind of figured out we'll we'll sort that out later yeah um, and that proved to be the the real difficult nut um, but we did you know we over the years. Um, We've kind of adapted our designs and we've found, I would say, a cadre of um, metal suppliers that are really good. You know, they tick all the boxes, hmm. but it was, that was really not something that was very easy to do. And, you know, the cycle time on learning about your supplier, especially when you're talking about things like large pieces of metal, it's not something that you can learn about in just a few weeks. You know, it may take a year before you really find out they're not the ones for you. Oh, okay. <laughs> and then you have to start the whole, you have, you have to divorce that one. <laughs> and then you have to start the dating game all over again. Yeah. And then a year later, you find out they're not compatible. You know? So but where we are now is we actually have a supply chain for those things that is very tight. Prices are good. Lead times are very low. Uh, quality is high. Uh, response to our needs is very positive and uh, just good, very good supply chain from that perspective. So yeah, I, I, I remember what I, walking into uh, this is a strange um, kind of correlation, but the company Middle Atlantic Products that makes all mm -hmm. the racks, having seen their operation. Uh, over in the New York, New Jersey area and everything was in house, but it was, you know, bending metal and things that were pretty, uh, pretty bare bones kind of quality, you know, they, they, they turn out really well, but it's not like the fit and finish you're talking about for front panels and things like that. Yeah. That's a whole other level where you, you're just looking for something very precise and also beautiful, you know, um, yeah, that's, that's gotta be so hard to find. It is, it is very hard to find. We've talked, you know, at some point actually bringing some of that stuff in house ourselves, having a, a small machine shop, you know, 
Yeah. Um, but the capital requirements are big and there's, it's not, it's more than just a machine. There's chemicals and all kinds of stuff involved. Oh, so yeah. We're just not at the point where our vendors are so uh, erratic or unpredictable that we're willing to make that kind of investment right now. Right. Uh, some stuff we have taken in, you know, some small fabrication, but the big stuff, we, we still just contract that out. So it's, uh, and of course, at the time, no one thought we were, you know, they thought we were nuts to do this, you know, build these products in the U.S. It was crazy talk. So, but we stuck at it. And now, at, at, you know, during the pandemic, we're really at, at an advantage uh, because we really can move, you know, we can talk very, we're talking directly with our suppliers, find out what their situation is because, you know, it's just not, it's not an integrated circuit. Sometimes it's aluminum, sometimes steels, yeah. you know, fluctuating. And so it's, it's easy for us to be very close to what's happening in their business as well. Right. Right. Well, Rick, uh, switching gears a little bit, uh, when we were at Cedia, you, uh, we really spent a lot of time talking about your room correction um, system that you uh, had uh, created. And uh, that's one of those, those areas where there, there have been uh, other options in the market, but talk a little bit about why the, the idea for your own version of a, of a room correction system and, and what, what makes it unique. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things about a room correction system is, um, it's a complicated beast and it's kind of like a processor. A processor is a complicated beast. There's a lot of variables to set. Um, you can um, take the approach uh, that others do uh, in, I'll use the processor analogy, uh, where you take every variable and every value and you bring it out to the installer and say, here's your 2000 knobs, go ahead and twiddle them until you get the right result. <laughs> Um, and that, that seemed to be fairly typical of a lot of the room correction systems out there. Um, there was a lot of variables and knobs that were just sort of left for the, the user to, to figure out how to use properly and, and not misuse and not misset. And you really didn't know, um, when you were done, you know, if you navigated through the process correctly and if you used the right buttons and knobs and if you really got the best result you could. Mm. So our challenge was, can we come up with a system that does a couple things? Number one, it, it removes that ambiguity of, of um, you know, which knobs do I have to turn and how do I know I got the right result? Let's get those questions out of the equation. And then um, number two, um, how can I make it integrate with the kind of design language that our, our user interface uh, exemplifies, which as Ted mentioned before, you know, you can usually pick up one of our products and, and install it and use it and operate it and set it up without a manual consult. We wanted to challenge ourselves to see if we could do that with the room correction system as well. And okay. that's a, that's a tall order. Um, and then I guess finally the, the, the other two things, um, which are last but certainly not least, um, you want a repeatable result. You want something that um, if, I'm, if I'm correcting a, a room, what I'm really doing is I'm, 
I'm tuning a sound system uh, to a certain standard. And um, if I am a, uh, a craftsman, an integrator, I'm going to use craftsman and integrator synonymously here because that, fi- that finishing touch on the acoustics and the tuning is what, what separates a, uh, you know, somebody who's hanging TVs from somebody who's really integrating and installing a, a complete cinema experience in the home. Um, if, if I'm going to do that, I'm going to develop something that has a sound to my taste and that then will adapt to the user in the exact way that, you know, they want it to, uh, or I know how to, I know how to set it so that the user will be very pleased with the experience. Right. And so how can we create a, a, a system that, when you take it from one job to the next, to the next, the result is always at that same high level and it reflects you as an integrator and what your values are. Um, and then, and then finally um, doing that in such a way that you don't have to be on the job site for two days because, <laughs> mm-hmm. because there's so many instances where um, you know, this, if you think about the task of taking a, even a 16 channel, you know, a 916 uh, immersive sound system and tuning it. If you think about there's, you know, 16 loudspeakers and there's how many different seats, you know, it's one thing to tune those for one seat, but you can't do that because you're going to get anomalies, you know, six inches, two feet, three feet away to tune it for the whole seating area, to tune it for all the different, uh, combinations that you could have of different speakers, uh, different sensitivities, all those types of things. Um, do that in a in a reasonable period of time so that the person who's installing this theater doesn't get bogged down. They can get it done, put the finishing touches on it with the tuning, move on and get paid. Because <laughs> ultimately, mm-hmm. that's what we need to do to enjoy this is get paid so we can do it again. <laughs> right, um, right. And so that was, those are kind of the thought processes that, that said we can't identify anything on the market right now that allows us to do that. <laughs> mm, okay. Um, it would have been a lot easier to pick something, you know, integrate it with our, our system, put our name on it, do some logo customization or whatever. We just, we couldn't. So, um, so yeah, so we said, okay, um, it, it's just going to add to the checklist of things that people said that you can't do. You can't, you can't <laughs> build products in America. You can't build uh, a, your own surround processor. You can't build your own, you know, tuning system. All right. Well, we'll just, we'll accept the challenge. <laughs> Took us a couple right. years. Uh, we're reminded of that often by our sales staff, <laughs> a couple years. Um, but we're very pleased, um, that, the feedback that we've gotten from it so far has been really positive. Um, it's it's achieved uh, a large fraction of what we set out to achieve. Um, we still have things to evolve and things to improve, and we've got a path that's going to make it better and better. But we did create a system that is repeatable, a system that results in a high level of, of, of tuning uh, quality, uh, results in something that's easy to use, doesn't require a bunch of training sessions, uh, and it can be done in a period of an hour or less. Um, so all those things being said, you know, it's been a, it's been a pretty big success. And, and just to clarify, is it, uh, integrated into the software of, uh, the receiver, the, the, um, 
the, the different audio products or uh, is it um, I'm the processor? Is it uh, a separate piece? Um, I know the mic, there's a microphone probably involved, but uh, right, how does it actually right. all work together? Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of the systems that have all of the firmware built in, um, usually that's because um, they include some relatively modestly costed, you know, modest cost hardware, you know, some inexpensive microphone. Yeah. Um, the, since you're dealing with the, custom integrators, they probably need to have, they'll have their own. Right. Yeah. Tool. The, yeah, there's two reasons. One of the things is that we, we, we kind of implemented, we, we started out with the, the idea that this is a professional integrator. There's a good chance that they're charging for their time to do this service as they should. And so as a result, this should be a professional tool. So as a result, these are professional level um, measurement microphones that are factory calibrated, have a calibration curve, all that kind of stuff. Um, and it's more than one. Um, so we, we opted based on the algorithm. And this speaks to the other requirements of consistency and quality, um, as well as time saving. Uh, we opted to do four microphones um, because what that does is by applying four microphones and the way the algorithm treats the signals simultaneously, um, it a it saves time and it b it it gives a more accurate depiction acoustically of what's going on from a spatial perspective in the listening area. Um, so the long-winded answer to your question is it's a kit um, that the integrator would purchase and then they'll generally reuse that as they go from installation to installation. It's going to be something that they're going to use along with the other tools in their toolkit when they're installing a, a private cinema. All right. Well, we will continue our conversation with Rick Santiago and Ted Moore after a short break. Founded in 2005 by a team of highly skilled audio veterans, Wet Sounds is an award-winning Texas-based marine audio company bringing a level of performance, style, and durability unparalleled in the audio industry. Wet Sounds is proud to introduce you to the Venue Series 110-volt, 1200-watt, four-channel amplifier system. The VS1200 amplifier was specifically designed to power Venue Series products while utilizing a 110-volt power source. Included is the VSLSENC, a purpose-built landscape enclosure designed to house the Wet Sounds VS1200 amp with a plug-and-play media center in harsh outdoor environments. Learn more, visit wetsounds.com. Welcome back. I'm Jeremy Glowacki, and I'm talking with Rick Santiago and Ted Moore from Indie Audio Labs. Uh, Rick, you and I were just talking about the room correction system, and uh, you were mentioning microphones, of course. And it uh, cl clicked in my head that, hey, this guy might know about microphones because uh, you worked <laughs> at Sure for a while yeah. prior to your Clips, Clips time. So did that at all yeah. come into play when you're developing the system? Oh, yeah. I mean... Uh you know, uh, I've, I, I spent a lot of time at sure great company up in Chicago. Um, and, um, you know, spent a lot of time learning about microphones early in my career. And, and I certainly have gotten to apply a lot of the knowledge of that when it comes to this tuning system. Um, there's, there's certain things that you do want to do and certain things that you don't want to do when it comes to characterizing a room with a microphone. So, yeah. Well, I, I, I wanted to just cover your both of your backgrounds a bit uh, just to wrap up here. And no, I, I think folks love to find out how, how did 
certain individuals in this industry get into this industry. It's not always the same path. Uh, there's a lot of similarities, but um, but before we before I head back to Ted on, on this question, um, did you in college when you're at Marquette uh, think you were going into anything related to audio, or was this just a completely <laughs> different zigzag um, path? Well, I would say that Ted and I are probably opposite in this regard. I I, I kind of in high school wanted to go into audio. <laughs> okay. Um, I ended up getting a job at uh, at the time it was Flanners Audio Video up in Milwaukee. Mm. Uh, which is where I grew up and um, uh, worked for John Flanner, a great guy in our industry. And um, he, um, you know, working there, uh, I worked in the service department, actually. So I was an engineering student when I graduated from high school. And I, I wanted to design, um, at first I thought I wanted to design loudspeakers. I, I had done some uh, home loudspeakers as a hobby and things like that. Um, and then I got into the electronic classes and I realized, Hey, there's some magic that's going on here. You know, it's just a, it's a circuit board, but you know, those electrons are doing some amazing things behind the scenes. And I got very intrigued by that. So I got into the electronic side of things. Um, but I always throughout college, it was always aiming towards audio. Um, I, um, I was exposed to my uncle's quad sound system when I was a teenager <laughs> and blown away by the motorcycle driving around the room. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it sort of changed my life back in the day. Um, and then I, uh, I got into music and, and playing saxophone in high school. And, and uh, unlike a lot of my peers, kept doing it and still do it to this day. Um, I was at the Jazz Kitchen a couple weeks ago playing uh, for a Christmas show with nice. the big band and stuff like that. So. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I've always loved music and audio. So I pretty much have taken a path that's very much audio centric the whole way through and, and, and had a lot of interesting experiences and a lot of, um, a lot of enjoyment along the way. So, well, I'll, I'll flip it to, to Ted then. So you you <laughs> definitely weren't going into the audio business. Yeah, I don't know. Right I mean, when I was in, my background's in physics. Uh, in, in college, I wanted to have my own space startup company. <laughs> so I'm only okay. about 40 years too late for that. As it seems <laughs> like. um, now, I've always been interested basically in sort of, um, you know, kind of, I'm not really, I really enjoy a lot of different elements of physics and I've worked in many different fields in physics solid state, it's called condensed matter these days, um, astronomy, astrophysics. And uh, in all cases, though, there's really been an element of experiment and instrumentation. Um, uh, spent a number of years in the semiconductor industry, actually, and um, have built numerous uh, instruments for uh, observatories, uh, mm -hmm. military applications, things like that. And, uh, I'd never really done anything in audio. Um, this is back in 2008 or so. And I happened to notice, uh, Klitsch was, uh, looking for some folks to do some advanced development. And I thought, oh, that's, I've never done anything in acoustics. Mm -hmm. That's, that's an area that's completely new. So I, I was really jazzed to learn about it, you know? So, uh, that's kind of what zeroed me in on, on this, on this field. And I, I came to it pretty, pretty,
pretty open to what I would discover. And I kind of realized there was still, there was a little bit of a, a lack of <laughs> what I would call uh, certainly the UIs in uh, modern audio systems were pretty lame. So I, I resolved to, you know, be involved in, in, you know, refreshing that a little bit. Because I knew that in, in the, you know, audio systems weren't going to be relevant for millennials and, and younger folks if they maintain that level of, you know, UI. And, and what was, and, what, was it the layered approach of having to get... Yeah, it was, it was just very hierarchical. It was not intuitive. There were things that were brought forth to the user and they had, they were responsible for controlling the system yeah. when it was completely unnecessary. And, uh, uh, it was almost like they were too much of an instrument, you know, and it needed to back off from that. Right. Because Which is ironic for somebody who's designed instruments, isn't it? Right. <laughs> <laughs> these things aren't going in the hands of scientists, right? They're right. going to someone who listens to some freaking music for crying out loud. So, <laughs> um, just get to the, yep. you know, get to the point was really kind of how it boiled down. And, um, and there were some, you know, there were modern uh, semiconductors that needed to be explored, quite frankly, certainly in some of the amplifier designs. Just... Just sort of a, you know, what does, in my mind, it was just the question, what does a high performance audio system look like in the 21st century, right? You know, yeah. what does, what does it have to have? You know, it's got to have good audio. That's a given, right? That's the very under, that's the very foundation of it. But on top of that, it's got to have these other layers in order to have the experience be something that people would want to partake in and enjoy. So, um, that was an interesting problem because it really wasn't being done at the time. It's, it's now being, you know, since the advent of companies like Apple and Amazon and Google into the audio business, uh, albeit at a, you know, kind of an entry level in terms of quality. Uh, nevertheless, that's raised awareness of audio and its importance in modern entertainment systems. So they, in some sense, they've done our, some of our job for us, you know, and getting the word out because once people are aware that the audio is important, then they start looking for, well, how you mean it can sound like it can sound better. Right. Right. And then if they hear one of our systems, they're like, what? <laughs> I didn't know it could sound like that, you know? And when you see that happen to someone who's only used to kind of a subpar audio experience. It's pretty amazing and, and rewarding too, quite frankly, that we were able to, to bring that to them. So yeah, for, for a while there, it was like, you're going to get the audio experience of, of Apple uh, earbuds uh, at, at best. And then it kind of evolved to maybe it's going to be one of those like smart speaker things, but uh um, Sonos obviously is, is as much of a name brand as, uh, Apple and Google these days, Absolutely. um, which God bless them for, for being a brand that people recognize. But then there's, there's a step up from that obviously. And, and, and then you start getting into what you guys are talking about and, um, what, when you're, when you're working on, um, I guess, uh, the audio quality of your products, um, 
you talk to speaker manufacturers and talk about voicing and all that. Uh, are you trying your products out on all different speakers or how does that work when you're, when you're a components manufacturer? Yeah, certainly on amplifiers, you're going to want to run on as broad a variety of speakers as possible. You're going to want to run on challenging loads, especially if you're talking about a straight amplifier going into a passive loudspeaker that's got a crossover. Um, they're all different. Uh, you're going to want to do simulated loads, actual loads, things like that. Um, listening, there's just no substitute for it because, yeah, you know, and you know, it's, you can't overdo that. Um, and so part of the thing that we do is we all have our own equipment and prototypes at our houses and, you know, we're always playing and trying things and, and listening to stuff and trying to push it because if it breaks, I'd rather break it at my place and have somebody break it out in the field. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yeah. But yeah, but yeah, we also have partnerships with companies in the industry. Um, so we have uh, companies, mm -hmm. speaker companies, for example, that um, utilize our products in their experience centers or demo rooms uh, or take them into trade shows and things like that. That's always a, a, a good, good, good thing for us. Good thing for them. Um, you know, companies like, uh, pro audio out of California theory, um, Kef out mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, England and, and with their New York experience, New Jersey experience center. So as a final question to wrap up, uh, today, I, I wondered if you both could maybe answer, uh, as we go into this new year, uh, what are the, the big goals or goal for, for the company, for the brands, uh, what, uh, from a production standpoint, what are you looking to get out in the market uh, that's not quite available yet or anything new that you might want to um, preview that's coming up? Uh, we'll start with Ted since uh, I've talked to you in a couple minutes. <laughs> yeah, the, probably the uh, the earliest and the, the most interesting one will be our Aragon preamp, the tungsten. So we show, again, we showed that at CDA last fall. And so that's something that we're going to be launching uh, here in Q1, and uh, you know, I think people are just going to love it. You'd really be able to set up a fantastic two-channel system from that. Um, you know, moving into to, to Acuras, we've got uh, obviously, you know, our processors are some of our best-selling products. I mean, people just really love the Muse, for example. I mean, it's just such a uh, a, a powerful machine and a very compact package. So that's something that we're going to, you know, keep pushing. And, and, uh, as you know, and our, our, you know, one of our big hallmarks is just the fact that we have very, uh, I, I won't call them easy, but they're straightforward paths to updating and, and keeping the products relevant. So, you know, we're going to continue that effort into 2022 with some of the activity that's going on and sound format technology and so forth. So, um, and we, you know, we usually drop a new software rev maybe every, every other month or so. And wow. Okay. From that perspective, it's, uh, uh, just we're either treating some, uh, you know, some improvements in some of the UI or some of the behavior of the system and as, uh, source manufacturers change their sources willy nilly. Apple, <laughs> <laughs> um, 
you know, we have to adapt to that, quite frankly. So, and that's, okay. that's part and parcel of just a, you know, when you have a product like a processor, it's what you have to do. Um, sure. And then we're, we're going to probably show some interesting new uh, uh, things with our class AV amplifiers line and, and things like that. Rick. Well, well, Rick, you, you, I think Ted took all the good good answers, but uh, yeah. anything you have to add? Yeah, I, I would just say at a high level, I think the two goals, you know, from my perspective are, um, number one, get the word out. I mean, I think there's still a lot of folks that don't know about us in the industry. We're still the up and comers. Um, we, uh, we've proven ourselves to a lot of folks, but there's a lot of folks that just don't even know that we exist. So, uh podcasts like this, you know, help get the word out. So we appreciate that. Um, and then, um, you know, taking better care of our customers in terms of uh, being able to deliver faster, uh, give them a, an option to be able to get product quicker than they can from, from other competitors, you know, whether it be due to supply chain or just because we've got, you know, better operational systems that allow them to get product when they need it. Um, that's, that's a big goal for us because, as a small company, you have to kind of transition out of that, you know, bespoke uh, build to order mode, you know, when you only have a handful of customers to where we're going to, which is to, to, to basically be able to serve a, a, a big industry and a growing industry uh, because the CD industry is, is, uh, is, is pretty big and it's, it's a, it's what we're committed to and we want to reach as many people as we can. Well, Rick and Ted, thanks so much for taking the time to talk today. And uh, great talking to you both. Same to you, Jeremy. Right, Hopefully Jeremy. we'll see you at Starbucks one of these days again. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> thanks, Jeremy. Rick Santiago and Ted Moore are the co-founders of Indie Audio Labs, the parent company of the Acuras and Aragon Home Cinema and two-channel audio brands. You can learn more about the products at aragonav.com and acurusav.com. That wraps up today's show. If you're new to Residential Tech Talks, please subscribe to the weekly podcast on your preferred platform and consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Also, check out all the latest residential tech news at the magazine's website, restechtoday.com, where you can also subscribe to the bi-monthly print or digital magazine and to our Tuesday and Friday email newsletters. Until next time, please stay safe, stay inspired, and let us know if you have a great story to tell. Residential lighting specialist to our residential house.